0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Hebrews chapter 13, verses 14 through 25. I'm going to call this section, Miscellaneous Exhortations and Farewell. The whole chapter 13 is about exhortations. The first exhortations he gave in the first part of the chapter were very, very serious, high-powered exhortations, I call them. Here they are still somewhat serious, not quite as serious. And there's other few interesting little details in here that's not related to that theme we'll take up as we go through. So we start with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. What's the four there for therefore? Because Jesus was crucified outside the camp, bearing the shame of the disgrace of being outside the camp, separating himself from the hideous Jewish sacrificial system that was now defunct so that's why he was outside the camp and because of that we don't have an enduring city here in other words Jesus is so divorced from Jerusalem that leads the author of the book of Hebrews to say we need to be divorced from present-day Jerusalem too, not look at it as an enduring city because we're seeking the one to come the heavenly city the new Jerusalem We do not have an enduring city here because, as a matter of fact, Jerusalem did not endure. It was destroyed in 8070, as John Gill points out. Adam Clark says this, quote, Here's an elegant and forcible forcible allusion to the approaching destruction of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that was below was about to be burnt with fire and erased to the ground. Now, the author of Hebrews had no nostalgia about the physical Jerusalem, like a lot of people today do. But listen to what the author of Hebrews said about Jerusalem. Hebrews 11:10. For he was looking forward to the city that has no foundation, that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That was Abraham. Hebrews 11:14. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. In other words, they didn't have a homeland in Israel. They were looking for something better. Hebrews 11:16. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Again, this is a heavenly city, not an earthly city. Hebrews 12:22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels and festive gathering. Not only in the book of Hebrews, but Paul and John also in other scriptures say the same thing. Galatians 4, and 26. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Present-day Jerusalem was compared to Mount Sinai where the law was given because, the author, because Paul wants to associate Jerusalem with legalistic slavery. Why would you Hebrew Christians be care, be, care anything about present-day Jerusalem anymore? It's slavery. It's law. Verse 26, Galatians 4, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. That's the heavenly Jerusalem, the city that Abraham was looking for. Free because of the price that Jesus paid to free us from the curses of the law. Revelation 11, 8, their dead bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. That's the two witnesses representing the, the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the pot. Prophets, their dead bodies will lie in the public square of that great city, which prophetically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well where was the Lord crucified in Jerusalem? And what does John, the author of Revelation, call Jerusalem? He likens Jerusalem to Sodom, which is, of course, was also burnt by fire at the hand of the Lord, in Egypt where the Israelites were in bondage. So no, Jerusalem was not a big deal to the author of Hebrews, and he wanted his readers to know that jerusalem was not a big deal and that maybe they better quit thinking about running back to jerusalem and its legal system after all it was going to be burnt down now this new jerusalem of course could be the new jerusalem coming in heaven at the end of the world but remember the heavenly jerusalem was there at the time in the in the 60s a.d there was people in the church in heaven in 80 60 so it could, it could be seeking the one to come after you die not the one to come at the end of the world we go to verse 15 hebrews 13 therefore Through him, that's through Jesus, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Now, the word sacrifice here is not literal. It's used metaphorically here for an offering to God. The offering here is a praise offering to God. We praise with our lips, and that's similar to putting an animal on the altar and letting that sweet incense go up to God. Now, the scriptures use sacrifice Metaphorically, in other places, Paul in Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So there, our human bodies are likened unto a sacrifice. Philippians 4.18, But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, what was the fragrant offering? It was money that the Philippians had sent Paul. So here, money is is likened unto a sacrifice given to God. So our personal bodies in Romans twelve, money in Romans four thirteen, and praise in Hebrews thirteen fifteen. We see that sacrifices sacrifices are great. He is a great Old Testament metaphor for what we do in the New Testament. Now, there are some other verses that talk about sacrifices to God that are not necessarily literal. Psalm 50, verse 23, and this is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. Whoever sacrifices a thank offering honors me. Now, the English Standard Version has whoever offers thanksgiving honors me, which is more metaphorical, and it's not talking about an actual offering on the altar, a thank offering. Holman Christian Study Bible translates it where it's as a literal, physical offering, a thank offering. So I don't know which way that should go. So we won't say that 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 verse and also Psalm one oh seven twenty two has the same thing. Sacrifices of thanksgiving, literally according to Holman Christian Study Bible, and thanksgiving metaphorically according to the English Study Bible. I don't know about those two, but we know that in Philippians, praise is excuse me, financial gifts are likened unto a sacrifice to God. In Romans twelve, our whole lives, our whole bodies are likened as a sacrifice to God. In Hebrews thirteen. The praise of our lips to God is offered as a sacrifice. And Jews could really appreciate this imagery, this, this meta- these metaphors, is because they were constantly offering up these sacrifices. The smoke of sacrifice went up from the temple constantly, never stopped. And so that's why we continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. because The sacrifices never stopped. The smoke never stopped going up to heaven. Likewise, our praise ought to never stop going up to heaven, and especially when things are going wrong, because that's when you don't feel like praising God. Just think about all the good stuff he's done for you when things are going wrong, what well, he's good, done for you in the past, and now when things are going wrong, start praising him for what he's done for you in the past, and what he's going to do for you in the future, for that matter. Now, it's interesting that at the time that the author of Hebrews wrote, all animal sacrifices were obsolete. They were still going on, but they had no effect And the Jews believed that during the time of the Messiah, all sacrifices would cease. Well, the Messiah had come, so therefore, the sacrifices, their efficacy had ceased. Now, it's true they were still physically going on, but they shouldn't have been. So, since we're no longer supposed to have animal sacrifices because the Messiah has come, now we have sacrifices of praise instead. These sacrifices of praise are the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Fruit is a reference to first fruits under the law, according to John Gill, you, you know the ceremony where the first fruit of the harvest, right after Passover, I think it was, the first fruits of the barley ha- harvest were offered to God. We go now to, well, before we go, let's look at this lips, the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Listen to this scripture here, Hosea 14:2. take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sin and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. What you say is important to God. Don't just think it, say it. This is probably the verse, according to Gill and Clark, that the author of Hebrews was referring to, Hosea fourteen two. Repay God with praise from our lips. Isaiah fifty seven nineteen. creating words of praise. The Lord says, peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. Let's create words of praise. Hebrews thirteen 16, Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Well, here's another metaphorical sacrifice, just like with the letter to the Philippians here. The author is saying sharing goods with one another is a sacrifice, and God's pleased with it. Verbal sacrifices are good, but we're to go further and add our conduct as sacrifices to God, our sharing. And sharing, of course, means giving alms to the poor or to somebody who needs money hebrews 13:17 obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you now we're going to find out at the end of this chapter that the letter to hebrew of the book of hebrews was written not to the leaders of the church there in jerusalem but it was written to the brethren and that's why it says obey your leaders He wouldn't say to the leaders, obey your leaders. He's writing writing to the average hoi polloi in the church. Now, this is one of my favorite scriptures because I believe it's been abused so much. I remember at 14 house church conferences, this verse was brought up every year for 14 years, I'm sure either by me or somebody else. It does not mean to obey somebody as if they were your drill sergeant in the army. The word obey there comes from the Greek patho and It's in the middle voice here. And in the middle voice, you look this up in vines, which I've done many times. You look it up in a Greek lexicon, it means to be persuaded by. So, we can read this. Be persuaded by your leaders. Now, I haven't done this in great detail here. But in those house church conferences, I would give long teachings on this. And I would go out and find other passages where the same word, patho, in the passive voice was translated in the English by be persuaded by instead of obey. But some for some reason, the translations don't like to translate it be persuaded by your leaders because we have the idea a leader is a somebody who tells you something, somebody who tells and, f- and commands you to do something. But the New Testament idea was totally different. The idea of the New Testament is a leader leads by persuasion. Imitate. Im- I look up the word imitate and see how many times we're told to imitate somebody. How about... Peter himself in 1 Peter 5 says the elders are to, to, to imi- you're supposed to imitate the elders. The leaders lead by example. The brethren are persuaded by the example. And that idea is not communicated by the typical obey translation. Leadership is by persuasion and example. It's not by command and control. The KGV is even worse than the Homo Christian Study Bible here. Homo Christian Study Bible says obey your leaders. The King James says obey them that have the rule over you. Well, that's not what the word means. That gives exactly the wrong impression. Here's a good quote from Steve Ackerson. Quote, the relationship between a church and its leaders is to be one of discussion, dialogue, reasoning, and persuasion. The church is to be open to, be, to being persuaded about what the leaders have to say. So you can persuade your flock, but if you're a pastor and you try to command your flock, you, have, you do not understand what it means to be a New Testament elder. Now, there are much stronger Greek words that the author tellingly did not use here. He could have said, Hupotasso your leaders, which means submit to your leaders. He didn't do that. Here's some other scriptures where hupotasso is used. Romans 13.1 Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Well, you, you do submit. A governing authority does have command and control authority over you, but that's not the word that's used for church leaders. Colossians 3.18 Wives, be submissive to your husbands. A husband... Well, this is kind of a hard one, is it not? In today's feminist culture, a husband who's supposed to love his wife is the church and who died, who died for the church. A husband's supposed to die for his wife, too. But on the, when it comes to making a final decision, the wife is supposed to submit to it, not be persuaded by her husband. She's supposed to submit to the husband. 1 Peter two thirteen: submit to every human authority because of the Lord. That's the same as in Romans 13. And there's others, which I'm not going to bore you with. There's also another word that could have been used there, hupakuo, which means obey. And here's some words that it means obey as in the sense of obey authority because of legal authority. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents. Ephesians 6.5, slaves, obey your human masters. Not be persuaded by your master, you obey him. And children, don't be persuaded by your parents, you obey him. So there's much stronger words that could have been used there for leaders. It was not used here in the Greek. Obey whom? Obey your leaders. Now, the King James here does the same thing they did in verse 7. They say in verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you. Good, nice King James English. King James translation translated by translators who were under the sway of the Anglican church, which was extremely hierarchical. But that's not a good translation. The translation is obey your leaders, as almost every English translation has. And here in verse 7, as well as verse 17. Verse 7, by the way, let me read that for you. It's a very similar type verse. These verses should be considered in conjunction with each other. Verse 7 says, Holman Christian Study Bible, remember your leaders. King James, remember those who have the rule over you. So if you want to get a good idea about church leadership, please put your King James Bible on the shelf and let it draw dust and get soaked in about a half inch of dust maybe. Those that have the ruler over you does not sound like leaders because a leader guides. He does not command. And the way we know that, especially in the New Testament context, is to go and see how Jesus used the word leaders. Luke 22 verses 25 and 27, but he, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles dominate them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it must not be like that among you. All right, first point here is that church leaders are not supposed to dominate jesus said so on the contrary whoever is greatest among you must must become like the youngest so church leaders must be as the youngest who's the youngest in the family a child how much authority does a child have in a a family to tell anybody else what to do absolutely none and whoever leads like the one serving jesus said the serving that means a slave how much authority does a slave have in a family or well in a family none and that's the kind of authority a church leader has. You got to persuade somebody to do it, and if you can't do that, you might as well you need to resign. That's an option, or you need to get them to do it, or you need to quit trying, or get them to go somewhere else, to get them to follow a different path. But you can't command anybody to do anything. The Greek word, by the way, that's used in Hebrews thirteen seven, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, and Luke twenty two six is exactly the same Greek word for, for leader. So when it's it's a form of hegumenos. Hegumenos, that means uh, leader. Well, it's a participle, but it means leader. And that word is used by Jesus. He says, whoever is a, whoever is leading, whoever is a leader, whoever is a, is hegumenos, it should be like a, a slave with no authority and should not dominate people, etc. And should be like a child. Same word hegumenos is used in Hebrews 13:7. Remember your hegumenos, plural. Unfortunately, I forgot I don't know what the plural form is of the word. Remember your Hegumenos, and then in in our verse here, in verse 17, Obey your Hegumenos, obey your leaders. Leaders are guides. They are not dictators. They are not dominators. They are not controls. They are not the ones that have the final say. They are not first among equals. Now, why were the Hebrew Christians told to obey their church leaders? To be persuaded by their church leaders? It's because their church leaders had played a prominent role in stopping the Judaizing heresy. And so, in this chapter, the author is going to emphasize that. Stay away from those heretics. Listen to what your leaders have told you. Their teaching is totally opposite to to those who taught those strange teachings about food mentioned in verse 9. Adam Clark says in verse 7, remember, on verse 7, he says, Remember your guides. Guides don't have even gentle management control. I don't follow a guide because I want to. I do follow a guide because I want to, not because I have to. Now we're not finished. We've already done two Greek words: patho and hegumenos. I guess it's hegumenoi. I don't know. I I haven't checked the Greek, but a form of hegumenos. We've talked about obey, patho, hegumenos, leaders, and now submit to them. Now that word, submit, is an interesting word. It's hupeko in the Greek. It's a word, according to Steve Ackerson, it's a word that occurs only here in the entire New Testament. Outside the New Testament, Hupeko refers not to a structure like submit to the government to which one submits, but to a battle after which one yields or surrenders. It was used of competence. Submission still occurs, but the picture is one of serious discussion and dialogue prior to one party giving way. Ackerson goes on to say, "...what we are dealing with in the final analysis is a delicate balancing act. The Church is to be open to being persuaded by its leaders." There is to be discussion and teaching, argument and persuasion. The picture is not that of mindless, unquestioning obedience. Yet, after a battle, wrangling over ideas, the church should ultimately submit, yield to its leaders. This is especially true in matters of doctrine. The elders should offer substantial evidence as to why a certain teaching should or should not be believed, such as the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the gospel message, the reality of hell, or gender roles in the home and the church. Yet the elders are the final line of defense against error, and if push comes to shove, those disagreeing with the elders are called up to yield to the elders' judgment. Hear, hear. Couldn't have said it any better. It's a wonderful discussion of how leadership ought to be. And I used to teach management, and this is years ago, back in the 1980s. There was a guy, and I forgot his name. He came out with a book that sold a million copies or so, and was talked about. and he talked about loose, tight management. Some things you're tight on. Some things you're loose on. You let people go this way and that way because it doesn't matter. But on the essentials, you have to be tight. You can't yield. It's the same thing here. The elders should not yield when something vital is at stake. But on other things, they should let the church disagree with them and hammer things out and go their own way and come back to you and and, and that kind of thing. It's an art, folks. It's not a science to be a leader in the church. And I think that this discussion will show you that there's two extremes. One, there's the pastor pope, which so many churches, especially charismatic churches, have. And then there's the doormat leader, who's just a figurehead, while the deacon board runs ragged over him and ruins his life. That would be like a lot of Baptist churches, I know. We need to avoid those two extremes. Now, let's look at another word in this verse. These leaders keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Ooh. In other words, when you're a leader of the church, Jesus is going to to hold you accountable. The verse says that point blank in James chapter 3 verse 1 says it point blank. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will will receive a stricter judgment. Teachers will have a stricter judgment. That's why you've got to be so careful with what you teach. And if you make a mistake, you need to go out and apologize. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't realize what I was doing. And one last word in our verse 17. So that these leaders can do this, keep watch over your souls. They can keep watch over your souls with joy and not with grief. Because I tell you, there's nothing worse than being over a bunch of discontented, griping, complaining, bitch moan and whining Christians who don't listen to anything their leaders say. Nothing worse than that. In fact, if I was a leader in such a situation, I would say, okay, go find yourself another leader because I am out of here. Let's go now to verse 18 of chapter 13, Hebrews. Pray for us, the author says, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. Now, why does he talk about a clear conscience right here in the middle? Why does he sound like he's apologizing? Steve Ackerson speculates perhaps it's due to the controversial nature of his ministry, and let's face it, he said some hard things to the Hebrew Christians in this book. Basically, what he's saying is cling to Jesus and leave Judaism and the opponents may have questioned his motives and his actions. What's he saying that for? And the author of the book of Hebrews concludes by saying, pray for us. It's an interesting thing. Paul, in many of his epistles, he would ask for prayer at the very end. So this is a typical thing. These big shot apostles that wrote the New Testament, they were not so proud and conceited that they did not ask for prayer. They needed prayer. We all need prayer. Continually offer up to prayer. is that what that verse we just read said? Continually offer up. Well, it was the sacrifices of praise. But it's the same idea. You continually pray. Pray at all times. Pray without ceasing, Paul says in other, in other scriptures. They want to have a clear conscience. The author does. He, the author, wants to have a clear conscience wanting to conduct ourselves. I guess he's talking about his fellow apostles that are writing with him or fellow church leaders, whoever they were honorably and everything chapter 13 verse 19 of hebrews and i especially urge you to pray that i may be restored to you very soon now the identity and whereabouts of the author is unknown as we know it sounds like he was at one time with the hebrews because he said restored to you he was delayed in getting back to them but he was not delayed because he was under arrest hebrews thirteen 23, four verses later says be aware that our brother timothy has been released if he comes soon enough he will be with me well if he's free to come with timothy's He was free. And it's debatable whether Timothy, as we'll see, debatable whether he was ever in prison. Now, this verse makes it clear that the addressees, the Hebrew Christians, knew well who the author was, that I may be restored to you very soon. They were familiar with each other. And when you know somebody pretty good, you can be a little bit harder with them. And that's what he was. He was very strict with them. Now, there's a question of how did the author of the book of Hebrews, how did his name get lost? Well, some speculate the author wanted to conceal his name for some reason fear of persecution. Some people say that just the beginning of the letter through the process of transmission and and the copying of manuscripts, somehow the beginning of the letter with the author's name got lost because the letter begins so abruptly. Adam Clark says it's really impossible to say why we lost the name. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that the author omits his name and his authority as a, as a leader because he wants to avoid prejudice against him. He has strong exhortations. He doesn't want the readers to think he's pulling rank. Well, all of those are nice speculations, but who knows? We just don't have the name of the author. Hebrews 13:20. Now, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, the first thing is very interesting here. Let's leave out some of the middle words here and read it like this. Now, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, dot, 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 with the blood of the everlasting covenant. The blood of the covenant brought Jesus, made him alive again, resurrected him. That is a strange thing to say. Of something I've never really noticed before until i studied this verse closely. The God of peace is often used in salutations. Here it's used in the benediction. Perhaps the author is concerned with the lack of peace caused by the false teachers, and I'm sure there was a lot of discord because of that. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says the Judaizing of the Hebrews was calculated to sow seeds of discord among them of disobedience to their pastors, and of alienation towards, well, James and Foster Brown say Paul, but we don't think Paul wrote the gospel, so let's say alienation toward the author. Now, Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. That shepherd imagery is everywhere in the scriptures. I'm going to run through some scriptures real quick just to give you a feel for that. You've probably heard a lot of sermons about shepherds. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm Isaiah 40:11. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fields. He gently leads those who are nursing. Ezekiel 34:11 through 16. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep when the day is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them into their own land. I will shepherd them. I will tend them with good pasture. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. I will tend my flock. I'm I'm skipping ahead here. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. Those are some false sheep. I will shepherd them with justice. So That's probably the longest shepherd analogy in the Old Testament. It's a good one. Ezekiel thirty four twenty three, I will appoint over them a single shepherd my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. Now of course David is a type of Jesus, who is now our shepherd. Ezekiel thirty seven twenty four, my servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. Now, of course, David is a type, Jesus is the shepherd for all of us. John ten verses two and three. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. That's Jesus. Jesus calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. John ten eleven, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Of course Jesus did that literally. John ten fourteen, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me. John ten twenty seven, my sheep hear my voice, I hear them, and they follow me. First Peter two twenty five, for you are like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. First Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, that would be Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So sheep is used a lot to talk about us Christians. It's a good description of Christians, as John Gill says, because sheep are harmless and offensive, but in constant danger. I love that. We're harmless, we're offensive. Oh, excuse me, I, I should have said we're, sheep are harmless and inoffensive. They're not offensive but they're in constant danger nonetheless because wolves love sheep. They love to eat sheep. Now, the blood of Jesus that brought Jesus up from the dead, as I said, strange thing to say, but it does say that. That blood is called the blood of the everlasting covenant. Everlasting means new covenant. Hebrews 8, 8-12, this is the famous new covenant passage, but finding fault with his people, he says, look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Luke twenty two twenty. The the Lord's Supper. and the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Well, that's the new covenant. It doesn't pre- specifically say it's everlasting, but it, the new covenant is everlasting. The everlasting covenant is the new covenant. Everlasting is the term that the author of Hebrews uses here in our verse, in verse 20. We see the covenant is called everlasting also in the Old Testament. Jeremiah thirty-two forty, and I, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's in the future, the new covenant. I will never turn away from doing good to them, and I will put fear of me in their hearts, so they will never again turn away from me. Folks, that will give you assurance if you're in the new covenant. He's ne- it's everlasting, and he's never going to turn away from you. Isaiah 55, 3. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, Jer- Isaiah says. The promises assured to David. Those are the promises that were given to Abraham and reestablished with Isaac and promulgated with David everlasting covenant isaiah 61 8 for i yahweh love justice i hate robbery and injustice i will faithfully reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them that's with us of course everlasting covenant is to be distinguished from the old covenant which is obsolete old passing away and an inferior covenant the one that was given at mount sinai to moses the legal covenant We move on to verse 21, but since verse 21 starts in the middle of a sentence, we'll go back to verse 20 and pick up the relevant subject and verb. Now, may the God of peace, dot, 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 verse 21, equip you. Now, may the God of peace equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. Now, here we have a promise. The Hebrew Christians had a promise that, or a prayer that God would equip them. Of course, that prayer is going to be answered. They can do everything that is good, everything to do God's will. As Steve Ackerson pithily puts it, where God guides, he provides. I mean, think about it. That's very logical. If God is going to lead you into a ministry, is he not going to give you the tools to do the ministry with? A lot of times, you can know that you're not in the proper ministry that God has for you, and you don't have what you need to do the job. He's going to equip you. If you're in the right place, he's going to equip you. Here's some scriptures about equipping, New Testament scriptures, Ephesians 4.12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. That's Jesus who's equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So every joint in the body, that, that means every person with a spiritual gift in the body of Christ in the church, he is equipped. Every joint. It's, he, the, the joint holds the church together by the thing with which it is equipped, by the gift with which it is equipped. That shows up in the ESV version better than some of the other versions where the word equip is not there. 2 Timothy 3.17, So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. No more milk of the word for the Hebrews. Time for them to move on to some meat. Now notice that God's will is working in us. The God of peace will equip you with all that is good, to do his will and how does he equip you with all of it is good to do his will working in you working in us he says working in us much of the work of god is internal to us not external when he's when he equips the christian to do the will of god and to do every good work it doesn't mean he, he's going to give the christian a bunch of money or jet airplane or whatever it is he needs externally he'll do that he'll give you what you need externally too movies whatever he'll do that but the main work is in you. He says, working in us. The God of peace will equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Here's some other scriptures about Jesus working in us spiritually. Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work, where? In you. There's the work, a good work in you, so the work is in you. And I'm sure Paul says that Jesus, who started that work, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How about Philippians 2.13? For it is God who is working where? In you. What's he doing in you? Working. So there's that idea of work in you. Just like in Hebrews, working in us. Both to desire and to work for his good purpose. So we can consider our souls as a construction site. Construction sites are busy, untidy, noisy, and dangerous But they're also very interesting. They demand lots of skill and produce amazing buildings. I used to work construction because my father built houses for his living, and so I have been in a lot of houses in the process of construction. And I'm always amazed when everything's cleaned up and the whole job is finished, you look at that house, you say, how can that be? How can a house be like that? It's amazing how houses come together. Well, it's because somebody worked in that house. Somebody worked on that construction site. And that's what Jesus is doing in us. He's working in our hearts as a construction site, making us more and more beautiful, more and more finished, more and more complete, stronger and stronger, ready for habitation, and, and so forth. It's a good metaphor. I made that up myself. So don't go blaming somebody else if it's inapt for any reason that I haven't thought of. Glory belongs to him. Glory belongs to, I think that's God the Father there. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Or maybe it's Jesus glory belongs to him forever and ever. I'm not sure who it is because it's the God of peace will equip you with all that is good to do his will. The God of peace is working in us through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him. And you would think the God of peace, but there's also that Jesus Christ there, what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him. So it's unclear what the reference is, but it doesn't matter whether it's God, the father, or God, the son, that glory goes on forever and ever. And that shows that they often knew that Jesus was God because if you give assuming the hymn is Jesus, because if you give glory forever and ever to someone who is not God, that would be blasphemous. So the author of Hebrews knew his Jesus. He knew he was God. Hebrews 13:22, Brothers, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, I mentioned this earlier. The author is writing straight to the brothers, not to the leaders. There's no mention of leaders here or anywhere else in the letter. Now, in many other New Testament letters, the leaders are mentioned in the greeting, but not exclusively. The brethren in general are exclusively always listed in the greetings. Brethren, 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 brethren. And every now and then or sometimes the leaders are mentioned along with the brethren. This is another good house church teaching. I've taught this many years at my house church conference. Now, what are some options as to why leaders are not mentioned at all? John Gill and Jameson Foster Brown mentioned this speculation. It was not fitting for Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles, to be speaking to Jewish leaders. Well... That assumes that Paul wrote the letter, and most people don't believe that these days, so that's not a good speculation. Here's my speculation. Well, it's not surprising that the author doesn't mention the leaders. Most of all the other Paul's letters were mainly targeted at the church membership, not the leaders. They weren't even written mainly to the leaders. They were usually written to the brethren, not the leaders. And so this is just carrying on the New Testament tradition here, so it's not a surprise. It could be this reason. The leaders had asked the author for help, and so the author is writing to the brethren because the brethren, in the case of the church of the Hebrews, the brethren were thinking about apostatizing, and the leaders were looking for some outside help. So in this chapter, he asked the brothers to yield to the leaders. I think that's probably the best reason right there as to why the author wrote straight to the brothers. The author exhorts the brothers to to receive this message of exhortation. Now, the author knew that letter was going to be hard to receive, hard to take. Why? Because it was controversial. It was asking the Hebrew Christians to give up their lifestyle, to give up their Hebrew roots, go be Christians. Ooh, to forsake the gods of our fathers. Actually, it's not true, but that's what they would think. The author says, for I have written to you briefly. In other words, I haven't written you a lot, so you can take it. I think that's what he meant by that, For because I have written to you briefly, and since I've written to you briefly, I don't have a lot of exhortations in there for you to obey. I just a few, so you should obey him. Well, what's he talking about briefly? Is he talking about the whole letter was brief? Jameson, Foster, and Brown kind of doubts that. They say, well, it seems like the whole letter is a treatise rather than a letter. Well, to which I respond, well, maybe it might seem like a treatise to us, but it might have seemed brief to the author because he had a lot more he wanted to tell the Hebrews, but he didn't have time to put it, he didn't have room to put it in his letter. Before the letter got to be inordinately long. Or it could be referred to the exhortations. I've written you briefly with the exhortations. I don't think so. I think it's referring to the whole letter. And I really do think that he says, hey, this is just a little bit of stuff. You can take it. Verse 23, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 13, I'm sorry. Hebrews 13, verse 23. Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Now, of course, this is the famous Timothy that was the constant companion of Paul on, from the second missionary journey all the way until his imprisonment at Rome. He was well-known to the Hebrews. His mother was Jewish, so it makes sense that he knew the Hebrew Christians as well. Now, it says Timothy has been released, and that could mean from prison. prison. He's been released from prison, some people think. Or another option, it could be he is released from doing some work somewhere and should be translated, he's been sent away. Well, let's look at those two options. I found an interesting comment by J. Andrew Duell, who I do not know, writing for the Cambridge University Press. He considers both options. First of all, the option that Timothy has been released from prison. Here's the argument. Paul and Timothy are almost inseparable. The letters to Philemon and the Philippians are addressed from both Paul and Timothy and appear to be sent from prison. This makes most sense if both are in prison. Timothy, as well as Paul, especially given, given the risk inherent in naming an accomplice who remains free. So in other words, since Paul mentions Timothy, he would be putting Timothy at risk if he was free, so he must have already been in jail. And when Paul is in prison, Timothy is not sent anywhere. Well, that sounds like a pretty good argument that Timothy would have been released from prison. However, the same author doesn't believe it. He, he, he states that argument, he said, but here's another argument against that. Quote, the personal tone and content of both letters, talking about the letters to Philemon and the Philippians, those two prison epistles, the personal tone and content of those letters nonetheless reflect concern only for Paul, what he has done and what will happen to him. No one cares about Timothy, so Timothy is probably not in prison. In other words, Paul didn't mention any, all the Timothy's troubles being in prison. Well, who knows? It doesn't matter. It's just, a, to me, an academic discussion about whether Timothy ever went to jail or not. Just remember this. he Maybe he did, but it's not been proven it can go either way. If he comes, soon enough he will be with me when I see you. If he comes, it's not known whether Timothy ever made it to the Hebrews. When I see you, says the author, it's not known whether the author ever made it to the Hebrews. Not a lot known about that. We've got two more verses to go. We'll finish Hebrews 13 in the book of Hebrews. Verses 24 and 25. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who are from Italy greet you. Grace be with all of you. Now remember, in a couple of verses earlier, he said, Brothers... Received this letter because he's writing to the brothers. And now he says, greet all your leaders because he's still writing to the brothers. This shows that the letter was written exclusively to the brethren. The brethren would then pass the greetings on to the leaders. And of course, this is quite obviously the opposite way that it is done in today's pastor-centric Christianity. Just this morning at church, we were talking about a pastor said he didn't have authority to allow somebody to carry a concealed weapon to church this guy had more than 20 guns he he didn't like that too much he didn't join the church but the pastor said that the board of deacons had told him that he didn't have authority to carry a gun in church even with a permit a concealed weapons permit and in discussing that he says what is the why does the pastor not have authority he's at the top he's the first among equals i said that's not the way it is in the scripture there's no first among equals and in elders in the, in the scripture and then he said, yeah, that's true in the Scripture, but in America it's different. we got at least three levels. we got the pastor, we got the elders, and the deacons. And then he thought him minute. and he says, actually, there's four letters. Then you've got the working deacons under them. And he goes through all this ecclesiastical crapola and stating that's the way it is. And he did an accurate job of it because that's exactly the way churches are because churches don't care how that was done in the New Testament. If they would, they'd be a lot happier, and Christians would be a lot happier. But they don't. Just remember, there was no single pastor in the New Testament church. There were no paid pastors in the New Testament church. There were no women pastors in the New Testament church. And all the pastors were co equal. There was no hierarchy of pastors amongst those plural pastors in the New Testament church. Greet all your letters and all the saints. Steve Atkinson speculates that the, all the saints he's talking about is referring to other Gentile saints who weren't being tempted to return to Judaism. And he sort of throws them in on the side. I don't know about that. That seems a little bit of a stretch to me. I think he's talking about all the Hebrew saints that they would have contact with. Then he says, those who are from Italy greet you. Grace be with all of you. Who are these guys in Italy? Well, some people suggest, although the Navi study Bible denies it, Adam Clark affirms it, that the author was in Italy when the letter was written. and That's what it sounds like to me, but it doesn't, does not necessarily have to be that. It could be the readers were in Italy when the letter was written. Wow. Well, I don't believe that. Adam Clark says so. Those who are from Italy greet you. So in other words, the author's writing from wherever he's writing from, sending the letter to Italy, and he's passing on greetings from other Christians in Italy to the Hebrew Christians in Italy. What are they doing in Italy for? I don't know why. That seems strange to me. We're going to put a big X by that one. It could be the author is passing on greetings from some Italian believers. In other words, the author might not be in Italy, might be somewhere else, but he's met some Italian believers somewhere in his travels, and the Italian believers might have left Italy, they might have been somewhere else, and they said, hey, how about pass on greetings to the Hebrew Christians since you're writing to them. That could be. I think it's easier just to say that the author was in Italy when the letter was written. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished with the book of Hebrews. I hope you listen to my next audio, which will begin our study of the book of James, and I hope you enjoyed this study of Hebrews.